The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 218. One day, I shall come back. That's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a time lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Braveheart even. Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding. Position heroes. Wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Hello, I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Ta-da! She'll be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the third Doctor story, Colony in Space. Joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well, thanks. Uh, folks, remember to subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify iHeartRadio, your favorite podcast app, or at the SQPN YouTube channel, where you should also make sure to hit the bell to get notifications. Also, be sure to stick around to the very end, where we're going to have some feedback from listeners, and uh, we've got some feedback on some recent episodes. But first, we're going to talk about Colony in Space, which is, as I said, a third Doctor story from 1971. That's when it aired. It's six parts, uh, and it uh, features primarily as the as the companion Joe. Uh, and I like that it's refreshingly named exactly what it is about. A colony in space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's uh, just a couple of background things. It's the first off-Earth story of the Third Doctor, and the mm-hmm. first off-Earth story in color. So that's something. And for a Master story, because all this whole second season of the Third Doctor is about the Master, uh, there isn't a whole lot of Master in it at first. So, <laughs> but, but before we get to all that, uh, we should probably summarize the story because it is a six-parter. So, Jimmy, do you think you could summarize it for us? Yeah. So the series starts with a single scene involving the Time Lords on the still unnamed Gallifrey, and they're wearing the uh, same kind of black robe costumes they did when they sentenced Patrick Trout into exile. And they are concerned because there is a doomsday weapon on some planet and the master knows about it. And so they decide to engineer the doctor to encounter the master to keep him from getting it. Meanwhile, back on Earth, the doctor is continuing to tinker with the TARDIS. He thinks he's got it fixed, although when he and Joe get into it and Joe has her first, it's bigger on the inside moment, which is the first of those we've seen in a long time. It it does take off, but the Doctor quickly realizes it's because of the Time Lords, not because of what he's done. And so they end up on the planet Uxarius, which I'm sure is much better than the planet Uxorius. But on this planet, there are a bunch of colonists who have two problems. One of them, really they had three originally. One of them was th- their relations with the natives. But they're but they kind of got that patched up. Their current problem is with their crops, which are not growing, even though they should. So they're on the verge of starvation. And their other looming problem is a threat from a big mining combine that could want to turn their planet into a mining venture rather than a colony, in which case they'd all have to leave in a shaky spaceship and die. Then, meanwhile, while the colonists are dealing with that, there are the mining combine people who are trying to get control of the planet. They're doing various Scooby-Doo-like tactics, using robotic monsters to impersonate giant iguanas and kill people with them. So it's kind of like Scooby-Doo gone horribly wrong. They're not just frightening them off the planet, they're actually killing some of them. And when the colonists and the miners come into conflict, they decide to send for a space adjudicator. Meanwhile, out in space, the Master is playing adjudicator. And in the final few episodes of this, he shows up and plays both sides. He's really here because he wants to get control of the doomsday device that the natives have in their underground Sleestack city. And the natives, that brings us to our final group, are the descendants of a once technologically great race, and they've kind of split into some different genetic factions. There's a a green group, a white group, and a really ugly baby 
that leads them and is able to speak. The rest of them are telepathic. And they are totally living the dream. They, and by that, they, I mean they're living the dream of the mutants in Beneath the Planet of the Apes because they are an underground civilization of mutants that worship technologically ancient artifacts, including a doomsday weapon. So all hail the bomb. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There, are, there are a lot of uh, elements that you see commonly in uh, 1970s sci-fi that show up in here. Yeah. Also, the story is consciously modeled on the experience of the American colonies mm -hmm. and the relationship between the European colonists and the Native Americans. And then also we get a kind of micro reenactment of the Revolutionary War, where you have the colonists rebelling against the mining corporation and using ambush tactics right. on them, which was uh, characteristic of the American forces and considered unsportsmanly, according mm -hmm. to the rules of war at the time. So it's kind of like colonization of America meets American Revolution meets beneath the planet of the apes. <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh, let's just take these in the, it's sort of the, the, the major chunks that we've got here. Uh, so that the first part, I, I kind of want to just look at the idea of the doctor getting his first trip off planet. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's the, this third doctor getting his first trip in the TARDIS. We haven't really seen the TARDIS interior in that whole first season and, and into this, the second season. We've seen the console outside right. the TARDIS, but we really haven't seen the interior at all. Right. right. In fact, we, we get to see this one wall that is very familiar to me from the Patrick Troughton era that has the roundels clearly printed mm -hmm. on, on a flat surface rather than actually being three-dimensional. Yeah, they, that's a wall that they can roll up to put a camera there instead, but you know, it looks very clearly yeah. fake. Well, and it, it, you know, it's clear that we haven't seen the TARDIS because Joe had never been in the TARDIS until this point. Brigadier yes. up to this point still has not been in the TARDIS. He doesn't get that until uh, the Three Doctors episode. Right. You know, because he makes comment, this is what you're wasting all the uh, unit's money on because um, he had never been in there. But yeah, Joe is no clue what he's doing in this tinkering in this little box. Well, she, she doesn't yeah. even know it's it's a it's like a it's a spaceship. She just thinks it's a yeah. box that's in his office. But well, yeah, and she should. This, I think, is a flaw in the writing. She should have a little bit more of a clue about it than that. She has heard the doctor claim to travel in space and time, but she says she's never really believed him. And I'm going. After all the stuff you've seen, <laughs> <laughs> right, but this, right. this, this kind of feels like a test because so long had passed since Patrick Troughton's era that like the director didn't even know how the TARDIS dematerialization yeah. effect worked. Yeah. So Just you hear the pop. noise, but then pop, it's gone. It blinks out. <laughs> yeah. And, and this is kind of a pilot reestablishing him as an interstellar traveler and then next, it's the only one this season where he goes off planet. Mm -hmm. But then next season, he's going to go off planet several times. And the season after that, they're going to just give him the key to the TARDIS again after the 10th anniversary episode. Yeah. yeah, it's also interesting, like the doctor's reaction to being off planet for the first time, like not confined to one planet. He's mm -hmm. like giddy. He's, almost, you know, for the well, third doctor. Uh, well, anyway. I love it. I love it. He's <laughs> mad because he, he realizes the Time Lords who drug him to this this planet in the future. But then he's like, but I'm not on Earth anymore. This is great. Joe's like, yes. take, let's go back. Let's go back to familiar. Let's go back to <laughs> Earth. Let's go home. And he's like, we're not on Earth anymore. Let's go. I don't <laughs> care what's he, going on. I don't even care that the Time Lords did this to me. Let's go. She says something along the lines of, uh, you know, because he wants to go outside. And she's like, well, you don't even know what's out there. And he says, let's find out. And he's like, yeah. he's just ready to go. And she's she holds back a bit, at, you know, at she first. Kinda, she kind of gets him to promise to come back to Earth really quick. And then once they get outside, she's like, okay, doctor, let's go back. And he says, oh, sure, fine. Just let me examine this rock. It's quite unusual. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so they, they, they do encounter the colonists at first. And, and as you mentioned, the colony is, is struggling to provide for itself. It's not even a subsistence level of farming uh, because there's a problem with the soil. And we'll find out later it has to do with the doomsday weapon underground. Uh, but there is one point where they ask for his papers. Apparently, at this point in human history, the you are required to have papers of various sorts to, to you know, otherwise you're illegal. Uh, and the doctor has none. And I was thinking, well, if this was New Who, he'd pull out the psychic paper and he'd be all set, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. No psychic paper. 
Um, oh, another thing that happens early in this, when Joe sees the interior of the TARDIS, she, you know, of course, is wondering about how it can be bigger on the inside. And the doctor says that's because it's dimensionally transcendental. And she says, what does that mean? And he says, it means it's bigger on the inside. <laughs> yeah. But at the, at the time, dimensionally transcendental was an advance in the world building of mm. this because we'd never had an explanation. And that actually, you know, kind of fits, that works to describe mm. it that way. And these days, now that people are much more familiar with dimensions, Rory is just able to walk in and say what it is, yeah. right. you know, upon first encountering it. But back in the 60s and 70s, early 70s, which is, you know, when this was made, the audience wouldn't have been as familiar. And so even having a hook like it's dimensionally transcendental right. was, was new. It was, it was a better explanation than we'd had before, which was none. And transcendental would have been a buzzword that people would have heard about something mystical and weird uh, yeah. back, back also, then. Also, transcend was has been a perfectly good English word for a long time. So if something's dimensionally yeah. transcendental, it somehow involves dimensions that transcend the ordinary. Right. Yeah. Um, so at one point, speaking of the TARDIS, the 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 uh, green aliens, uh, they they end up stealing the TARDIS. They just take it away. And I didn't. I thought there would be more made of this, but it really was just. Uh, it seemed to be a plot device to separate the Doctor from the TARDIS, yep. and that was about it. Got, There's have, no, yeah. Got to have TARDIS separation syndrome going on here, you know. Right. They didn't particularly do anything with it or want it for whatever reason. Uh, they just like to collect things, I guess. And but, well, they, uh, they, so. well, it sounds like they had been. Of course, we find out towards the end that they've been stealing from the colonists a lot of stuff throughout. Right the time yeah. they've been there. And it's just the TARDIS was one more thing they stole and put in their ruins because they could. Right. Yeah. They, they have an interesting relationship with the colonists. Apparently when they first met, there were some hostilities, some mutual hostilities, but they've kind of got a workable relationship now where they come to the colonists and, and are given food. And in exchange for being given food, they, they don't attack, and some of them are even friendlier than that. There's one guy who's like a mechanic that works on the nu the colony's nuclear power reactor, mm -hmm. and he's got an assistant who's a native that hands him tools. And the natives are telepathic. They don't speak, mm -hmm. but they can tell what you're thinking or saying, and so like the the engineer just has to think of the tool he wants, and the native will get it for him. So they have a kind of friendly but kind of not friendly at times relationship. Right. And and so they do things like steal stuff, but it's mm. it's 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 nice to see the natives not painted as all good or all bad. It's right. nice right. to see them portrayed as a mixed community that has good and bad points. You know, about the only time we ever see the aliens really aggressive is either when they're being attacked or they think right. they're being attacked. Or when we, they approach the underground city, their their city, right. then they then they get aggressive. as more self defense at that point than it is, um, than it is any kind of aggression, unjustified aggression. And that is a good because, as, as you mentioned, Jimmy, this was you know very much a you've got the Hudson Bay Colony plus the European colonists plus the uh, Native Americans played out in space basically. Yeah, you know, right. and, and I, unfortunately, I, a lot of times when you have that living in an area with lots of Native Americans and where a lot of that played out, they're usually played out as, you know, the John Wayne versus the Indians type. Right. The setup, savages. Where they're always they're always savages. They're always evil. They're always aggressive. Right. One thing that I thought they might do in this, because it had been a while since I'd seen this, but one of the things I thought they might do is have because the colonists have this food problem their crops are not growing mm -hmm. and i thought they might have the natives teach them farming techniques that right. would work because that's what ha really happened yeah. here mm -hmm. in north america the european colonists did not know how to cultivate plants in the new environment and mm -hmm. it took the native americans showing them here's how you do it right. in this environment for them to be able to feed themselves and that's why you have like uh, commemorations in the United States as Thanksgiving celebration mm -hmm. that involve both, you know, Puritans and uh, Native Americans because they really did work together to help keep them fed. 
Right. And I thought they might have done that, and that would have been much more interesting and realistic than what they eventually did, which was blow up the doomsday weapon that was poisoning the soil so that all of the radiation it was leaking is now distributed in the soil and will therefore stop poisoning the soil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that one didn't make a lot of, a lot of sense. Uh, well, it it kind of well, kind of yeah. read as a uh, we got to end this now and make everything get on to happiness because now the colonists <laughs> can't leave the planet and right etc. So spe- speaking of uh, uh, you know a, a mixed uh, among the aliens like mixed motivations, but there's also a mixed motivations among the colony because th- there's divisions. There's the leader Ash who wants to you know make a go of it. He thinks that you know if they could just keep working at it, they can they can they can make the colony successful. And then this other group, uh, which represented by this other guy, Winton, who's like the, the head of their security, who's who just wants to get out of there. He's like, we've this is done. We're we're not we're not making it. We need to go. Although Winton eventually changes tunes when the mining corporation shows up and suddenly he wants to st- keep the planet right. and get rid of the uh, miners. It's yeah, very he wants he, he wants to declare independence of Earth. I mean, mm-hmm. Britain. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and- <laughs> So yeah. he's a revolutionary now. And and then we find out the, the the so the mining corporation shows up and that's a really interesting thing because they, these guys are just except for one, these guys are just bad. They're they they're using all these methods to scare the settlers off the land so that they can take right. it. The land is technically belongs, you know, it's designated for colonization by Earth, but yet somehow they've used their influence to muddle the muddy the legal waters so that it's also designated for mining uh at the same time and therefore it has to be adjudicated in the meantime they're trying to scare the people off with uh visions of of lizards and robots with comical claws attached to, to make it look like the, yeah. they've been attacked the, by giant uh, lizards and these are not humanoid robots these are like big boxes with silly arms with claws yep. on the ends of them right yeah. which you could definitely outrun <laughs> and outmaneuver <laughs> Uh, which the, the doctor doesn't. Well, in, of course, when they're talking about mining, we're not talking about, you know, doing some underground drilling. We're talking about, like, strip mining to the entire planet down to its core, basically. I mean, right. the, the way they talk about it, that by the time the the, the IMC is done, it's a pile, the, the planet is a pile of slag. So right. this, this is, you know, this is extra, this is, you know, take any kind of, you know, strip mining project you've ever heard of and in ramp it around the entire planet and that's basically what they do and of course it's you know they've got this unobtainium that they have to get that is only or that this planet is so rich in but there's nothing else but the, hey they've got this unobtainium so they better get it right it's yeah necessary for earth yeah and that's one of the things like because at, at points i'm thinking it's a planet like could they not move to the other uh, another part of the planet away from the duralinium deposits so that they could, at a place that's probably better soil, so that you know the the colony, and then they can mine here, and you can live on the other side of an entire planet away from them. <laughs> but if it's the sort of thing where you destroy the entire planet in the process, I, I suppose right. that's 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 the the plot problem. And of course, that's that's kind of a problem with science fiction in general, especially during this time. They didn't think, although they were on different planets, they didn't think in a planetary scale. They thought in a or that Local. you could just mine your dilithium off of asteroids, yeah. right? Or yeah, various other options that you that you would have. If if this planet has it, then maybe the asteroid belt, of, if it has one, of this system would also. But you know, that's that's the way it is. Uh, so so the, you 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 mentioned the the one person who's different among the yes. miners, and that person is a guy named Caldwell. And he is willing to, like, lie to EarthGov, but he's not willing to kill people. And so he's another kind of nice, morally ambiguous character. He's not perfect, but he has his limits in how far he's going to go. And ultimately, that he, he ends up siding with good because the miners want to push past the limits of good. And mm-hmm. so Caldwell becomes a hero. Interestingly, Caldwell was originally meant to be a woman. Huh. And they actually hired and contracted with a woman to to play the part, but then a decision was made. Somebody high up thought this wasn't a good role for a woman, and so they hired the guy who plays him. But the they had already contracted with the woman, so they had to pay her too. Apparently, she had a pay or play contract. 
Hmm. And so they paid twice for that part. The other figure that's really notable is the leader of the miners, who's Captain Dent. And I love how Captain Dent, even though he's thoroughly conscienceless, is also just completely emotionless. Yes. The whole he time. Chew he doesn't the scenery or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. He's very understated. And I, I, I like that in a villain because so many villains are the opposite. Well, he's right. very proper British, you know. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and just, uh, he, he's, yeah, he's just so cold the, the entire time, just so cold and calculating, has no feeling about the people that die. They're just obstacles. Uh, is very, you know, very, straightforward in in his in his just mercilessness uh toward toward the the colonists he has no even at the point where they have where he knows if they board that ship and the the old colony broken down colony ship and take off they will not survive he doesn't care it's very clear he has no yeah. feelings about that she, she he's a lot like servalan on blake seven except servalan is even classier and of course is sexy <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, there, there is also another figure that shows up, it, 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 and and I do like the subtleties in the in the writing here. I mean, this guy it, clearly you find out who he is. You you guess who he is early early. But another element in this story is this guy Norton who shows up, mm. and he's he appears to be an, a colonist from another colony that no one knew about who shows up half dead uh, with these lurid tales of be, of his village. His colony being attacked by the aliens and the and the giant green iguanas, and because uh, all the movies of the sixties and seventies had a giant mm. lizards used blown up images of iguanas for some reason. Uh, so the he, and and telling his tales and how you can't trust the aliens and we got to get out of here. And he's just and it turns yeah. out, of course, he, that he's he, a, he, he's definitely not an antivirus salesman. Norton is really a Trojan horse. <laughs> right, right. He's been he's actually one of the miners who's been sent in to undermine the colony from within and yeah. to report he's, he's back an, to Dent. He's an underminer. He's an, he's a minor underminer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, then uh, I do like this one point, Joe and this other, uh, Winton, the, the, the other colonists, they sneak on board the mining ship in order to get proof that they've been, uh, you know, trying to trick the people and they've been doing illegal things uh, and they get caught. And then they're, 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 chained to a, a bomb and joe says don't worry i can i can get us out of this i took a course in escapology which mm -hmm. is not eschatology which is a yeah. theology subject but it's uh, a course in how to escape from things apparently which is yeah. oh yeah good. it is it is yeah. escapology is a real thing and she's mentioned that she's taken that course before so it's nice to see joe getting to use her skills well and <laughs> yes. it, it, it kind of fills out that joe isn't supposed to be just you know a good-looking companion she's but she's supposedly like this yeah. this highly you know this highly ex experienced uh spy more than anything else i mean she's got all these skills at cryptology and all that kind of stuff and you really never see it she just sits there and hands tools to the doctor half the time yeah joe eventually so joe does escape and then there's a, a, a scuffle with a guard and, and this guy went and gets shot and runs off and joe meanwhile is taken by the green aliens from the the miner who's been gu guarding her and they take her to their underground city, and uh, the and then the doctor eventually shows up there as well. And they learn that was interesting. They had this this moment where they're in this room where they're being held, and there's a freeze, a frieze on the wall, which shows a a, a visual representation of the history of this civilization mm -hmm. that they the doctor interprets quite readily. <laughs> what, yeah, what it's showing. Including this, the bit at the end where it looks like they're, they're to be sacrificed to probably a reactor core or something along those lines, uh, and, uh, and they they're taken off to this this room. They think they're about to be sacrificed, and that's when they meet um, the big ugly talking brain baby. Yes, yeah. uh, which apparently, according to the the script, is called the Guardian. I don't think he's ever called that online on the no. on the in the the show itself. No. But uh, the doctor, you know, they're condemned to death because no one is allowed to enter the, the alien city. And the doctor says that, that the basis of all true law is justice. And so, but you have to temper your justice with mercy. 
Mm-hmm. And they, they're they actually allowed to leave, but are told that if you come back, you'll be killed. You know, part of his argument for justice is, hey, your guys brought Joe here. She didn't come here voluntarily, and mm-hmm. I'm only here to get her, and we didn't know about this law, so to apply it to us would be unjust. Right, right. Uh, so uh, an interesting an interesting encounter there. He, he manages to convince them that their own law was not going to be applied correctly. You know, it was interesting, though, as the doctor left, he said something about, you know, about having, you know, infinite justice or something like that or mercy. And I it almost sounded like he was being snarky. You know, as he was being yeah. let free, I mean, it just it was really weird the way John Pertwee expressed it, where it didn't sound grateful <laughs> for this. It sounded more like, well, if you had real justice or something like that, I can't remember quite what the, the line, phrase was. The line that I remember was like, I'm gratified to see that justice prevails in your city or something like that. But yeah. I took it as straight. There yeah, I just another it, line. Yeah, no, that, that was the line I was thinking of. And it was just and maybe it's just the way I heard it. But like I said, maybe it was and it was the way that John Pertwee expressed it. It almost it sounded more aggressive and kind of snarky. But obviously it wasn't meant to be, but that's the thing is it wasn't meant to be. It's just kind of the way it came across as uh, I heard uh, Pertwee, it. Pertwee kind of comes across that way sometimes. Anyways, he he likes think. the snark. He, I mean, yeah, he really is good at the sarcasm. So Br- British sarcasm is, is, is a fine art. Uh, so uh, there is a, a the, also we talked about the, the, the master is showing up. And so I wanted to c- kind of talk a bit about that because right at the top that when we have the, the Time Lords talking about this, they... We're not told exactly what's going on. We know that there's a doomsday files on a doomsday weapon that are missing. Something about the master, and they they need to use the doctor to deal with it for some reason that they can't deal with it themselves. And and that's about it. And so we spend the next two, I think, three episodes, yeah, without touching on any of that. They're just we and it it was very interesting that we spent all this time dealing with this colony all this stuff. And it's almost forgot about the Master mm-hmm. and the Time Lords and the Doomsday Weapon until this point. Uh, well, because they didn't tell the Doctor what his mission was. They're letting him bumble right. into it. Right. They figure if, you know, once he encounters the Master, he'll know something's wrong. <laughs> so, and so that when the Master shows up as the adjudicator, uh, I, I did like how the Master was kind of, when he, as soon as the Doctor comes in, he's like, oh, um, uh, yeah, we need to take a recess and go. And he... <laughs> Like he's he's really uh, thrown for a loop when he sees the doctor show up, ready to put a, a spoke in his uh, wheels. Interestingly, so there is a real adjudicator who we is apparently been shrunk or something because we never see him on screen. The master has taken his place. We do get to see his ID card, mm-hmm. right? And the adjudicator is, and he's got like this costume to signify he's an adjudicator. He's got this really tall collar and stuff. And the actual adjudicator is played by a guy named Graham Harper, who is one of the behind the scenes crew Uh at Doctor Who. And the picture of him with the high collar shows up again in Tom Baker's era in the brain of Morbius as one of the eight Morbius doctors. And so some have speculated that it was that this colony in space now has the first occurrence of a pre Hartnell doctor. <laughs> oh, that's funny <laughs> that the doctor and the master tangled with each other twice in the course of these adventures. <laughs> that is very wibbly wobbly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the, the, the master's goal here is to get control of the doomsday weapon, which it, it apparently can blow up any star within the galaxy or the universe. They they seem to use those terms interchangeably. Yeah. Well, origi- or, an originally universe just meant so in solar system, right? You know, oh, okay. in, in the old days, nobody knew there was more to the universe than the solar system. Right. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, so, well, but they could blow up any star, you know, from from this location. That's what he wants, so that he can take control of the galaxy. Well, so, you know. It shows that uh, Stephen Moffat didn't come up with the uh, the entire universe is in danger if we don't stop him. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> what, what I like, tying into the Stephen Moffat and the Russell T. Davies era, there are elements in this, in the Doctor's relationship with the Master that are explored in New Who. Mm-hmm. So in this, you have the Master offering the Doctor partnership in ruling the universe. And that shows they are genuinely friends. He wouldn't offer him that if he wasn't a friend or didn't mm-hmm. think of him that way. 
even though he's a little bit murdery as a friend. Um, <laughs> but he, he, when he offers the doctor a partnership, he says, you know, I offer you power, power for good. You could end war, suffering, and disease. Mm-hmm. And the doctor is actually thinking about it. You, you right. watch Pertwee's acting. He's actually tempted by this. And this is essentially the same or a similar, very similar deal to what Missy offers the Twelfth Doctor in Dark Water and Death in Heaven, mm-hmm. where she gives him the cyber human Earth Cybermen army as a gift to do with as he wills. And he can, he can impose good everywhere if he wants. And just like then, he, he, he says, in essence, uh, I don't want to rule. I'm just a madman with a box. And here, what he says specifically is, I want to see the universe, not rule it. And that is paid off in the Russell T. Davies period, where at the end of time, the 10th Doctor Regeneration story, the Doctor is making an appeal to the Master of, you know, we could travel together, and it isn't it enough just to see the universe? You don't have to rule it. Mm. And so I like how this episode has those elements of the Doctor and the Master's relationship and how they look on the world that get keep getting played out much later. I think it's interesting how the Doctor says to the Master, why do you want to rule the galaxy? Why? You know, like, well, it just doesn't understand why you would want to rule the galaxy? What possible benefit is of, of like how, you? You can go anywhere, do you know, anytime, any place with your TARDIS. Why do you want to rule everything? And the master says, the basic law of life is you either serve or you rule. And mm-hmm. so I don't want to serve; I want to rule. And that's it. Shows that very interesting difference in mindset between the doctor and the master. I mean, the, the it. It's a it's a difference between good and evil, you know. The the idea that's I mean, isn't that sort of Milton's the words that he has for Lucifer? Non-serviam. You know, uh, right. I will not serve. You know, I would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. And that's that's essentially what the master is saying here. Is I I'd rather not rule in hell, but but he, I'd rather rule than serve anyone. Except the doctor has seemed to find seems to have found a third alternative, which is I'm just going to head off on my own. I'm not going to serve mm-hmm. anybody normally although he is in this episode, but I'm also yep. not going to rule anybody. I'm just going to wander. Yep. Right, right. Yeah, the, the master well, has blink, a blinkered view. Well, it's, it's interesting, even as the, the master puts this, you know, either-or option, it's not necessarily, like, evil. You know, the master, I mean, he's obviously got, he, like you say, he's, he's a murdery friend, but at the same time, he's not like this blind, this blind evil, black and white, just, you know, you I'm always going to yeah. be evil person, and that that's that's one thing I think why people always appreciate the master when he shows up because he is he is a little more subtle than just I'm evil, ha ha ha. Most of the time, most of the time, yeah. yeah. Well, he is he he's he's interested in ruling. He, if if ruling means doing good for people, he's okay. He just wants yeah. to rule. Yeah, right. And he, but he's also willing is willing to do whatever it takes, like blow up uh, planets and in sol- in solar systems uh, to do it. He, if you if you were merely look at the, a demonstration needed to prove the effectiveness <laughs> of his rule, if if you would if you want to uh, kind of uh, categorize the the master the various masters in the D and D alignment, uh, this is this one is lawful evil, whereas um, Missy, Missy and is chaotic evil and yeah. John the Johnson ones is definitely chaotic evil as well. So yeah, that, there's that that difference there. Um, yeah. It, it's it, it's interesting because you know we've got different kinds of doctors and we have different kinds of masters and it makes mm-hmm. very, very interesting storytelling because of these differences. Um, so the do- the master has these various at different points he supports different parts of the factions here in order to get what he wants. At first he rules in favor of the miners, I think because he thinks if he can get rid of the colonists he can get to the doomsday weapon and 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 use it, but. But eventually he figures out, actually, the colonists have a good relationship with the aliens, and that might be able to get me into the alien city, and then mm-hmm. sort of switches. I also like how he has he, he, he's arguing these things in terms of legalities as mm-hmm. an adjudicator. So he's not naked about, oh, well, you can help me more, so I'll go with you. He has legal reasoning to, to support what he's doing. So... Even though he's initially ruled in favor of the miners because 
the colonists, the colony is failing and the miners can actually make good use of the planet is mm-hmm. the argument he uses. But then he tells the miner, he tells the colonists, you could have a counterclaim if you can show like some historical interest to this planet. And it's like, oh, there's this alien civilization here that used to be great. And we've got all these ruins and they have this underground city. And it's like, okay, that's an argument for cultural mm-hmm. preservation then. And and so I like how it's it, it's framed that way. It's not just naked. He actually has legitimate, you know, plausible sounding reasons that allow him as adjudicator to reach the conclusions he's getting to. Right. Mm. I also like how the when when things go against the miners, they that's when they realize that uh, the master is not the actual adjudicator, and so now they've become the enemy who are working to uh to out oust the master to under to 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 kind of uh, reveal him as the uh, and and just and ruin his plans uh, so and so the the ties the alliances mm-hmm. shall you say they they shift a lot in this episode which is very interesting it keeps it uh fresh throughout the six episodes it it does that was one of my comments is that despite the fact this is a six parter set in one location Mm-hmm. It all of the politics and the complex relationships between the characters keep it fresh. Yeah, it, it moves. Yeah. It moves fairly quickly. I mean, you you still have the running in corridors because it's Doctor Who, especially classic Who. But of course, it it really. I mean, it, it layers because yeah, you start out as oh, it's this just simple. You got the colony. Oh, now you got the mining company coming in. Well, now you got the master coming in. Now you got the underground city coming in. And, you know, and it, it there's layer after layer after layer that kind of builds up to the final showdown, if you will. I also found it interesting that the doctor, unable to convince anyone that the master is an imposter, uh, he he reveals that he still has the key to the master's TARDIS. By the way, mm-hmm. I, I remember mm-hmm. that he had that from a few stories ago, and so he and Joe go to the master's TARDIS to break in. Uh, they yep. they they circumvent at first <laughs> the uh, alarms, uh, but mm-hmm. then Joe trips it. Yeah, tri- dumbly trips it. Uh, I like that the master keeps all his uh, very important yeah. information in yeah. like regular old very, 20th very century organized. file cabinets. Very, yeah. very organized. He <laughs> also has his agonizers in his uh, console room, so yeah. got to have that as well. Paper files in filing cabinets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> uh, but uh, they they end up getting captured by the master, and uh, Joe is held. Uh, you, you know, and that's how the master gets the doctor to get uh, to do what he wants. Uh, that the the resolution of this is so the 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 doctor ends up uh, destroying the doomsday weapon at the behest of the aliens guardian king. Oh, this makes no sense. So the <laughs> the master and the doctor have gone back down into the forbidden city, even though they've been told by the ugly brain baby that if they do, they'll be killed. Mm-hmm. And so they get down there, and the brain baby comes out again out of the wall. And and realizes that the master wants to use their doomsday weapon to rule the galaxy, and he's not into that. So he decides the master is unworthy of of ruling the galaxy and doesn't want him to use the doomsday weapon. And even though he is telekinetic, mm-hmm. and and illustrates that by when the master threatens him with a weapon, he like telekinetically removes the weapon. Mm-hmm. He then asks the doctor to throw the switch on the doomsday mm-hmm. weapon, even though he could just telekinetically push it. Right. And so, so that's a minor matter that makes no sense. The larger matter is you're a guardian. What the hell is this? Let's suddenly destroy <laughs> our civilization thing. I yeah, mean, right. why are you suddenly suicidal and wanting to kill all of the people within the within the Sleestack City here? This doesn't make any sense, and and so I, I it, it's it, it's because they want a big explosion, but no. there's no right. diegetic reason for this. They want they want a big explosion, and they want the big final ramp up where everybody's running out of the city, to, and they leave right right as everything goes boom out of the the cave right and they want the doctor to be the one to flip the switch the doctor yeah. has to be the one to defeat the the master so meanwhile the, i mentioned the the colonist ship took you know taking off and exploding and we we're left to think that 
all the colonists, except for this one guy, Winton, who didn't board the ship, are all dead. That's what we're left to, to, mm-hmm. to believe, uh, because we saw Ash, the, the, the leader of the colony, uh, at the controls of that ship as it took off. But it turns out that they all got off and Ash sacrificed himself so that the colonists could sneak off and then right. ambush the miners again. Uh, so th- there's this 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 moment of uh, you know the self sacrifice of the leader, sort of um, it's almost he's almost uh, uh, paying back mm-hmm. for being a failed leader for not being able to let get the colony to succeed. He's 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 helping it. He's sort of seeding the colony's future with his own life, if you will. And that doesn't. He, I don't view him as a failed leader. He was just in a tough spot. Yes. Right? Also. Th- it's not clear to me from the dialogue that he had to go up mm-hmm. with that ship. They could easily have included a line about it was necessary for there to be a pilot. We couldn't have sent it up on autopilot. Right. Right. Which wouldn't be plausible, but they could claim it. I mean, we have autopilots on airplanes today. Right. But they don't. I mean, they could say it's so broken down, the autopilot didn't yep. work. He had to go up. But they didn't, and so I kind of got the vibe that he sort of wanted to die, even though that's not properly set up in the previous episodes. Well, and they don't they don't play it out at the end where they show his daughter that had gotten off the ship, and yeah. she's as bubbly and happy as could be. That's no sense of, oh, my dad just gave his life so that we could survive. Nothing. Right, right. Yeah, That that I often find that in a lot of TV shows, that the pe- people don't, react to these situations the way you'd expect them to you know to at least be upset like you don't have like people grieve and are are in shock so that happens but she was not in shock she just wasn't completely not i mean that's not to say she needs to be there you know lying on the floor in a you know puddle of tears but at the same time you know some reaction of you know even just a a little sad (laughs) i'm gonna miss my dad i'm gonna you know and i'm happy you know but i'm glad he was able to you know, say, give his life so that we could continue or something, you know, something like that. Or, or something. just don't kill him. Have yeah, right. the autopilot work. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't really necessary, I think, for this story. It, I, but for whatever reason, they thought it was a, a, a beat they wanted to have. So it ends with them, the colonists dragging the doctor's TARDIS back into the main colony dome area. Mm-hmm. You know, none the worse for wear. So. No reason, you know, no big, it's no big deal has been made out of the TARDIS having been stolen in return. It's just, you know, you were deprived of it, so you couldn't leave. So they take it back to the unit headquarters where the brigadier is still standing there saying, Doctor, come back at once. Come on out, Doctor. Yeah. <laughs> As if no time had passed. Well, so, and which Doctor it says it's only been a couple of seconds. Right. And brigadiers think it pretty proud of themselves. Like, yeah, I told the doctor to come back and he did. <laughs> yes <laughs> i i do like that that they came back merely seconds afterwards uh that's something that for this period in television is a bit of a stretch conceptually mm-hmm. but it shows the writers are thinking four-dimensionally yes and uh the brigadier comments like oh you'll never get that thing working properly and uh and and sort of and they and he leaves them at that he doesn't tell at least at this point tell him in fact, he says to to Joe, "Don't try to explain to him; he'll never understand what happened." Uh, that they went on this adventure, like, so mm-hmm. they kind of leave the the brigadier in the dark, and thus the audience feeling smug because they they are superior to the brigadier in being able to understand such things. Yep. Yes, yes. So, any uh, any other uh, comments or thoughts about this episode? Uh, well, you talk, talked earlier about how that this was the first episode, and they're kind of trying to you know getting first episode outside of our Earth, and they're trying to get their their feet under them again for that well you could tell like with the props all the guns were very clearly 20th century style guns mm-hmm. including being gas-powered projectiles right although they yes. were in the 25th century uh you know you know then modern style machine guns and so on i that's something i wanted to comment on I, I i meant to mention it i really like the rugged frontier environment with all of the guns yeah that they have and everybody knows how to use a gun the women have guns too mm-hmm and this is just a practical part of life, and there's no none of the modern judgmentalism about guns. This is just this yep. is a frontier environment. You need to know how to use a gun. Well, well, even the the colonists' guns look like typical 20th century hunting rifles, things that we would right. use today. You know, colonists today would would use for you know hunting food to survive. You know, of course, we find out this planet doesn't have any native um, animals. Yeah, 
But well, yeah. it, it has some birds and bugs, but not birds. not ground life. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. So that was that was kind of interesting though. But you you could tell it was they raided the the BBC store for you know <laughs> for weapons. Uh, as well as the filing cabinets, of course, and the master's TARDIS, if they didn't <laughs> right. just raid the BBC offices for that one. I, I got a kick out of the, the pilot chairs were basically just barber chairs. You know, the, the pilot ship, the IMC pilot ship, that was just barber chairs, you know. Right. But hey, they look they look futuristic enough, I guess. And then the uh, I, uh, John Pertwee must have put it in his contract. If we're going to do this, we're going to have the buggies. I get to drive them. Yes. You know, you of course, that- we've talked before that he's a big <laughs> car fan. Yeah. So you know he he's like I get to drive some. Yeah. In fact, I I, I noticed that that when Caldwell is going to take him to I forget where they were going. It, it's the doctor gets in the driver's seat. Yeah. <laughs> Just go to the the uh, and goes the flying down ship. the road. You know he had to have yeah. fun with that. And then finally, <laughs> the the master's little uh, security key or security key fob or whatever you want to call it looked like the jammy dodger that the the eleventh <laughs> doctor used against the Daleks. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Uh, Jimmy, any final thoughts? So this uh, episode is set in the late 25th century. The colony Mm -hmm. apparently launched from Earth in 2471, and -hmm. it's at least a year later, possibly a bit longer than that. But that's the general time frame because, you know, they took time to get to the planet, presumably. I am impressed by how when the doctor is hearing these reports of giant lizards killing people, and he's encouraging the colonists to stay and make a go of it. It's like all of your problems are solvable. Whatever it was you saw can be destroyed. Right. It's like, wow, okay. You should remember that in the future when you, say, encounter a giant spider or something. <laughs> <laughs> then it, yeah. uh, when Caldwell is talking to the doctor as he's investigating one of the so-called lizard attacks, the doctor says he's just doing some tests, and Caldwell, the miner, says, are you some kind of scientist? And Pertwee haughtily declares, I am every kind of scientist. <laughs> <laughs> when the nuclear power plant breaks down at the colony, uh, Mary, the daughter, who we haven't really mentioned, Ash, she's Ash's daughter. I mean, we mentioned that she doesn't really grieve for her father, but she, when she's told that the nuclear power plant has broken down, she says, don't worry, Jim will fix it. And I'm going, really, that line in context is is very unexpected because Jim will fix it is a British television show starring Jimmy Seville, which um, which in which he would do what were called fixes for people. It's kind of like Fantasy Island, only in the real world, Mm. you know, it's like or make a wish type things. And so I, I immediately thought, wow, I kind of doubt Jim will fix it will be a culturally recognizable thing in the late 25th century, given the indignity with which Jimmy Seville's career ended yeah. and his extra legal proclivities that were revealed. Mm. There's some very unpleasant things that he did in later yeah. years. But it just, at the time, and this line, I, I even saw a reference to it being ad-libbed by the actress. I don't know if that's true. But at the time, it wouldn't have been anything more than an in-joke, mm-hmm. I guess. But today, it really kind of pops out. There, I, There is a line at one point where the doctor says, referring to the main dome in the colony, he says, let's get back to the space dome. Yeah. <laughs> because they're on a planet in space, I guess. Well, they were space and, buggies, too. Well, I, that's the next thing I was going to point out, that the, the ground cars they're using are called space buggies, again, because they're on a planet in space. Well, I'm on a planet in space, too, and so maybe later I'll go out and get in my space truck and take a space drive and maybe stop at the space store or something. Well, they're on a colony in space. they got to have a space dome, a space buggy, a space... Ration space pack. guns. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So in any Jimmy, event, I, those those are my remarks. Uh, I I do want to point out that that Jim will fix it. Mm-hmm. Uh, only began in 1975, so four oh, okay. years after this. So uh, that just seems a coincidence. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And it's probably just a coincidence. <laughs> there is a Doctor Who connection to Jim will fix it. The oh yeah. Fourth Doctor Tom Baker actually appeared in the second episode. Apparently, yeah, more more than one uh, Doctor has appeared on Jim will fix it. Ah. <laughs> 
So uh, if, if, if you want to know more about Jim will fix it, folks, just Google it. <laughs> it's in Wikipedia. <laughs> I don't want to get into the details. Uh, one thing I want to mention, uh, just kind of a funny thing, the Master's spaceship, which was really a TARDIS that's in disguise, uh, as it came into land, it looks very mm. much like a conventional uh, like fighter jet style. And it's even got landing gear on the bottom, and it's so it's coming to land, and then tilts up and lands on its tail. <laughs> yeah, what's the landing gear for then? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Presumably, it's bimodal, depending on what kind of landing spot you got. I, I, I gather, yes. <laughs> Just Didn't look great. like they had a long runway. Apparently, no. apparently. Uh, <laughs> all right, so that'll do it for our discussion of this episode. I do want to get to the feedback I mentioned. Uh, this is feedback from our episode 212, where we talked about the curse of the black spot. That was the 11th Dr. Pirate story. Uh, Susan writes via email, according to the book, The Republic of Pirates, being the true and surprising story of the pirates and the man who brought them down by Colin Woodard, there really was a Henry Avery with a ship named the Fancy in 1696. His real name was Henry Bridgman, and he was born in the town of Plymouth in the English West Country and joined the Royal Navy. Uh, the Royal Navy was not to his liking, so after about a couple of decades at sea, he left and went to work in the Merchants uh, Marine. That career choice wasn't much better, so one thing led to another, and he became a leader of several men, becoming a hero to them, and he became a pirate and was very successful. And by the end of 1696, he had vanished into legend. And mm. then she mentions that there's a book that was published in 1709 called The Life and Adventures of Captain John Avery. Uh, which was supposedly de- you know, detailed his adventures, uh, so on and so forth. And there was even a play ma- later made about his life, The Successful Pirate. So uh, it's just pretty impressive for one year of being a pirate. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and and well, ends up on Doctor Who. And, and now we know why, where he disappeared, too. Exactly. He got exactly. on an alien spaceship and flew off. <laughs> He's traveling the galaxy. <laughs> Thank you, Susan, for your feedback. That, that uh, actually is uh, really interesting. Uh, All right. I think we should wrap things up there. We'll take a moment first to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Matt T., Dennis W., John S., John V., and Lawrence Z. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. Now's a great time to become a StarQuest patron. Thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter, when you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com slash give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor. So if you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now is the time. Visit sqpn.com slash give today. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. Uh, what did you think of Colony in Space, this third Doctor story? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time where we'll be discussing the fourth Doctor story, The Android Invasion. Until then, Father Cory Stiga, thank you for joining me and sharing the Secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember... I'm not some kind of scientist. I'm every kind of scientist. Right. This is going to be fun.